Good to see you this morning. It is, and I mean it with a little extra angst. It is good to see you. Um, uh, if you're not aware, Hallie and I have been gone for the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's been uh, bittersweet. Uh, sweet in the sense that um, we've been together as a family for two weeks straight, which was uh, needed and valued and cherished. And at the same time, though, we consider you family. So it was like bitter in the sense that we were away from you. We missed you all deeply. And as soon as we got home, we're thinking about who can we call to have dinner with? Who can we hang out with? And um, we just wanted to be back with you. So um, thank you for giving us the time. Um, if you're not aware, um, every sixth year in, uh, in pastoral ministry, um, I'm required to take three weeks off, and two of those weeks have to be together. It's like a forced sabbatical and rest, and so it's forced because I don't, I don't want it or I don't necessarily like the idea of it while it's still needed, and so, um, so I've done that and been gone for the last two weeks and still have to be gone another week some other time, but um, anyway, just want to say thank you for giving us that. Um, we didn't deserve it. We hadn't earned it. It was a true gift from the church to be gone, and thank you for that. Um, we're going to be in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there and your uh, sermon notes, um, I'm going to read the whole text that we're going to go through today and then we'll walk through it. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 12. So really what we're going to be at today, um, over the last two weeks, uh, Cam and Brian have carried the torch of preaching the series and uh, from what I've heard, had done a fantastic job. I've got to hear the recordings of their sermons and I've heard great feedback from you. Um, last week, uh, Brian was preaching on affliction and suffering from 2 Corinthians, uh, opening from chapter 1, and then he landed in chapter 4. We're actually going to be in between there today, at the end of 3, into the beginning of 4, looking at the light of the gospel. And uh, so as you turn there and get ready, uh, just a couple of things I want to start with. Um, so uh, the, the idea of light um, can, can, can both be a positive and also a negative thing. Okay, just some practical examples. The idea of light, light brings warmth, light brings illumination in the midst of darkness. Overall, we are thankful for light as long as it doesn't come on too early, right? Too quickly, because then it can be something painful, something to step back from, okay? Now, all that to say, the idea of us as a church being called to be the light in the world, you as a Christian being called to be a light in the midst of the darkness of the world you live in and operate in, um, can both be a positive or a negative thing. And so I want to start with just a general understanding of what the way our culture tends to project the idea of being the light. Surely you've heard a song that is calling the church to be the light from this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We just sang about Jesus being the light. Um, you may be familiar with these uh, famous teachings from Jesus in Matthew 5. He calls the church the light of the world. And he says, just like you um, don't take a lamp and, and light it and then put it under a basket. Instead, I want the church to be like a city set on a hill that everybody can see the light. So let your light shine bright that those of the world might see your good deeds and, and worship and praise your God in heaven. And then in John 8, Jesus says, and I am the light, he calls himself the light and lets us know that anybody who has trusted him now has the light in them, Right to be a bright, shining light in the world that we live in. Yet when we look at the modern-day understanding of light, whether you're listening to a radio station, you're singing a song, or you're looking at a bumper sticker, um, we get this impression that to be the light is simply to either be nice or to be moral. So we talk about letting our light shine by helping out our neighbor, being kind, 
uh, paying for the person who's behind us in line at the drive-thru. Uh, we're told that you can, uh, you can let your light shine bright by feeding the hungry, clothing those who are poor, doing kind things for people. We're also taught that being the light has something to do with morality, that you should let your light shine bright by being moral, by staying away from sin and doing good, upright, holy things. Now, while all those things are good, that's not exactly or specific enough when we read this beautiful proclamation and call to be a light in the midst of darkness. So we're going to see today what it truly means to be the light, what Jesus was saying when he said, you be the light in the world, like a city set on a hill. Starting in uh, verse 12, we're going to, to fully understand what it means to be the light, we've got to talk about the darkness and what the darkness is. And so let's read, um, starting in verse 12, chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Now, Paul starts with a clear understanding what he means when he says darkness. So when we tend to think about living in darkness, being in darkness, we think about things like being lonely, being depressed, being desperate, being hopeless, being without direction. Now, while all these things might be symptoms of what it means to be in darkness, what Paul is getting at here is to be in darkness is to, to literally be veiled from what is true. Now, he goes back to Moses in Exodus 34, and he uses this as um, a real example, but also as a metaphor for us to understand 
truly what it means to be in darkness, that we might understand truly what it means to be in the light. And so what he's talking about is a reference to Exodus 34, where Moses would go up onto the mountain to be in the presence of the Lord, to hear a word from the Lord for the people. And then as he came back down, the glory of the Lord was so bright and so vivid that it literally changed his countenance. There was a reflection off of his face of having been with the Lord. He would come down before the people and they would see it on him. Now, when we read about him veiling his face, um, if, we, if we misunderstand it, what we would say is he veiled his face to protect the people from the glory of the Lord. That's not actually what happened. If you read Exodus 34, as the glory began to fade, he would cover his face so they wouldn't see the fading of the glory of the Lord, and he would remain veiled until he went back up onto the mountain, unveil his face, be in the glory of the Lord again, come back down before the people with a fresh word. The glory was shining off. He had heard from the Lord, and then as the glory began to fade, he would cover it up. That's literally what's being expressed here. The NASB translation, or the NIV, probably better stated than the ESV. Here's the NASB. If we look at verse 13, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The NASB says, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, didn't really work. Why? Because the brief moment that, that a person was allowed into the presence of the Lord had an immediate effect, but it had no long-term residual eternal impact. It would fade away. Now, we think about um, what's going to happen is Paul's going to contrast that with today. Now that we are in Christ, the veil has been lifted and it doesn't fade away. But while that is true, functionally, many of us still operate according to the old covenant. And here's what I mean by that. So many of you um, who are Christians have had what we call the, the mountaintop spiritual experiences, these mountaintop highs, whether it was a youth camp or a revival or a church service or some event in life where you were on fire for the Lord. You were excited. Things were stirring. You were ready. You, everywhere you went, you could not talk about what God was doing, right? Those mountaintop experiences, only what? To come back down off of the mountain and it began to fade. And what Paul is saying, that's the old covenant. That's what happened in the Old Testament. That's the veil that was dropped. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to pull this into a metaphor now to explain what it means to be in darkness. So he says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome or the fading of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. This was the real issue. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. What does the veil keep them from seeing? The glory of the Lord. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But to the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So in reality, what it means to be in darkness is it could be a number of maybe three different scenarios. Okay, Here's one. Maybe a person has never heard the gospel. 
So there's a spiritual blindness there. Much like the, the tribes that our team interacted with this last week, for the very first time, somebody has brought to them the light of the gospel and said, here is an eternal hope. And so maybe that's the case. There's somebody being in spiritual darkness. They have never heard the gospel at all. A second scenario might be a person who has heard the facts of the gospel, but one, doesn't believe them, or two, isn't moved to respond. Okay? Maybe there's a sense of doubt, a sense of cynicism about it. This person has to be, has to be convinced before they will step forward in a faith move to trust. And so there is a darkness there, a veil, keeping that person from seeing something. And a third scenario might be this. This was more of my experience as a young person, is a person has heard the facts of the gospel and maybe even believes them to be true, but doesn't see the gospel as radiantly beautiful. The gospel is seen, the facts are seen, but it's kind of in grayscale person hears the gospel over and over and over again, but there's a, there's a hiddenness to it. Um, I, I didn't grow up consistently going to church, but when we went, I was, um, we went to a Methodist church. Um, the, the church wasn't super evangelistic, but we took communion every Sunday, and every time communion was taken, the God, we got a reminder of the gospel. It was, we, it was explained, the elements of the, of the communion, what it represented, and, and the gospel was proclaimed. I heard the gospel over and over and over again. You know what it was for me? It wasn't that I didn't believe those things to be true. I just didn't believe that what the gospel offered was better than what I had. That's what it was for me. I was seeing the gospel, but it was in gray. And I wasn't beholding it as something glorious and beautiful. And so what Paul is saying, in the same way the Israelites had a, had a veil to keep them from, from seeing the glory of God today... There's a veil that needs to be lifted from our hearts so that we might behold and see the glory of the gospel. That's what it means to be in darkness. And because of that, then, some of the symptoms are living without hope, maybe, or despair, or um, depression, or even on the flip side, things that don't seem all that bad, an, over, uh, an unhealthy sense of pride and arrogance. Um, there are a number of different symptoms of living in darkness. If you're taking notes, what Paul wants us to understand is that when a person turns to Christ, his Holy Spirit sets them free from spiritual darkness. I want you to hear this verse in this context. Verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Surely you've heard that before. We sing songs here with that line in it. Now, it's a very beautiful, very powerful verse. However, it is one of those verses that gets hijacked out of context and then taught to mean a bunch of different things. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, there are some who would say, well, the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Therefore, I get to do what I want. No more rules, right? The Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Don't you put your rules on me, right? And so there's a sense of liberty to the point where holiness isn't something to, to pursue, Right? I'm just going to live however I want to live because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Um, and another example would be in a more charismatic context in worship. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Therefore, we can stand up and dance and move around the room and raise our hands and get all excited. Now, that's true. That's just not what this verse is saying. You see how sometimes so shallow we read the Word of God? 
What Paul is saying is where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you're in Christ, you've been set free from darkness. Like you've been set free from, from being veiled from what is true and what is beautiful and what is glorious. And you can now behold the glory of the Lord yourself. You get to go up on the mountain. You don't need Moses to go. You don't need a veil to protect you. You get to go into the presence of the Lord yourself. That's why Paul says this opening. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. He's not talking about an arrogant boldness that walks into the presence of God like, they did, like I deserve to be here. He's just saying it's very bold to enter into the presence of God. Let us not forget that. To, to be in the presence of the Lord and not die is a big deal. We have a boldness that we get to enter into the presence of the Lord. What does Hebrews say? We enter into the throne room of God with what? Confidence because of mercy. Now, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When a person turns to Christ, his Holy Spirit sets them free from spiritual darkness. Um, it's true in, in my life. When I, when I finally responded to the gospel, I'd heard it over and over and over and over again. I had a granny, my dad's mom, who shared the gospel with me, um, her sister, um, Aunt Tootsie. Anybody else have an Aunt Tootsie? Um, which wasn't her real name. I don't even to this day know her real name, but the, anyway. Um, Aunt Tootsie shared the gospel with me. It wasn't until I was 12 or 13, a friend of mine invited me to a revival service, and it was youth night, and the guy up front talking shared the gospel, and I heard it, and then he cornered me. <laughs> it's the first time I've been cornered. And he's like, here it is. Any questions about what the gospel is? No? Good. What are you going to do with it? And it was one of those moments where it was like, okay, like I've, been, I've been testing the water. I've been considering is what the gospel offers better than what I have, and in that moment, I stepped forward. Like, literally, I stepped forward and came down front, went behind the back in the dark room, real intimidating. The guy with the bushy eyebrows. It's all a very nerve-wracking experience. However, something changed. I heard the gospel. I believed it. And now, even in a context <laughs> that was a little scary and a little high pressure, still, somehow, miraculously, I saw the gospel as better than what I had. I saw it in its radiance and its glory. My eyes were unveiled to see it. Now, the Old Testament, and particularly the prophet Isaiah, um, when the gospel is previewed, if you will, here's what's coming, it's often described as something that people will see but not see, hear but not hear. And in that moment when the veil is lifted, what is seen becomes vivid and true and real. That's the light of the gospel. So, verse 18, Paul says, And we all, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, in contrast to the Old Testament where the glory was to be had by one special person, a priest to go before the Lord, bring the glory back to the people for a moment, it would fade away. Instead, in contrast, not only does the glory not fade away, it grows in progression. We're transformed into the image of Jesus. How? From glory to glory. Glorious experience to glorious experience. How does that happen? How does that work? What's the recipe for that? There's a lot of different ways this could happen. It could happen in an unexpected way on a Tuesday morning 
Tuesday afternoon, whenever, you open the word and you pray, God, show me something that I otherwise wouldn't see without your help. Speak to me today. Help me understand your word. Help me understand what's going on inside of my heart. Change me. You open God's word, you begin to read it, and all of a sudden, he illuminates the truth. Conviction and encouragement and all these things start happening on the inside. What's happening? You're being transformed in that moment from one glory, from one degree of glory to another. It can happen in very subtle moments. Parents, we have a lot of subtle moments where the Lord shows us something that's true about ourselves through the way our children most often are being disobedient. We learn so much about our relationship with the Father, how we take him for granted, how we demand things, how we, um, how we um, not only demand things, but we only give him attention when we want things. We learn so much in the subtle moments of life about what is true. Those can be very glorious, life-transforming moments. It can happen in the big events. Um, probably some of the biggest events of my life in any way are watching a believer um, draw their last breath. You've ever sat alongside someone who was passing from this life to eternity and that person's a believer, it's a very glorious moment. It's hard. It's hard to watch. I always consider it an honor because what an intimate moment to draw your last breath. I watched my grandfather pass. I've watched members of our church pass. And while it's painful, there's also something very glorious about watching the pain come to an end and watching the soul finally find rest. That sweet release from this temporary place to something glorious and beautiful. To watch somebody step from temporary into eternity. It's glorious. And every experience we have with the Lord like this, whether it be in a time in the word, whether it be in a subtle moment in real life where God shows you something about yourself, or it be in this huge event where God shows up big. When you experience the presence of the Lord, you experience his glory, and he's transforming you. But it doesn't fade. It's progressive. It's what we call sanctification. It's this continual process of growing every day more and more into who we are already are in Christ. That's the faith move. I believe it, so now what's happening in reality? I'm every day becoming it, every day more and more. Now, Paul wants us to see the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant so that we would understand what it means to be the light in the world. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, the primary point in this verse is not losing heart, but before we get there, we need to understand what he's saying. Therefore, having this ministry, what ministry? What ministry have we been given that has anything to do with what we just read? I'll read, I'll read a few verses from Acts 26 where Paul explains this ministry we've been given. We'll have these on the screen for you to look at. In Acts 26, Paul is explaining how um, he went from killing Christians uh, he was on a journey, actually, to kill Christians. He was on, uh, on the road to Damascus, and uh, the Lord, with a bright light, blinded him and knocked him on his tail and then brought him out of his blindness, now as a believer and as an apostle. So Paul is talking about the conversation he had with Jesus in that moment. In Acts 26, he's saying it this way. 
He says, I'm just going to start at the end of verse 17. He says, this is what Jesus said to him. I am sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Sound familiar? From the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is saying, this is the ministry I've been given. Jesus came to me. He knocked me on my tail struck me with blindness. Then he took the blindness away and said, Paul, it's time to go. You've got a ministry. What is the ministry? To walk those from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive forgiveness in a place of sanctification. Now, what Paul is saying then in his letter to the church in Corinth is this, and we all now, we all, we all therefore have this ministry by the mercy of God. What does it mean to be the light in the midst of darkness? It means that you have been given a light. This is the way I think of it. If you think of the gospel as a torch, okay, um, this, this beautiful fire that illuminates. After the resurrection, Jesus met with the 11 remaining disciples after um, Judas bailed. And he handed them the torch of the gospel. And he said, you guys take this and light the world on fire. And so then we pick up the story in Acts 2. How, does, how, do, they, how do they do that? Peter gets up in Acts 2 and he preaches the gospel. And when he gets done, several thousand people respond to it. What just happened? The veil was lifted and a torch was lit. And each of those people, then what happened? They all went out from there and began sharing the gospel with others. And the torches were lit. And then you end Acts 2, and it says, The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being, what? Saved. You and I, believers, we sit here today because that torch of the gospel has been passed on from believer to believer, from generation to generation, from city to city, from nation to nation, from continent to continent, the same fire that lit the early church, you and I have received. You see that? Therefore, having this ministry, that's the ministry he's talking about. We do not lose heart. Now, while I believe that Paul has on his mind suffering, matter of fact, he's going to go there next. This is what Brian preached from seven down, talking about affliction and being crushed and perplexed. We know that physical suffering was on the mind of Paul. But Paul never mentions his physical suffering without talking about God's purpose in the physical suffering for the good of the church. Always wants the church to know, don't feel sorry for me. The suffering that I'm enduring is for, your, is for your good. In this particular moment, what I think Paul is saying is not necessarily the physical suffering is what they're not losing heart to. That's going to come later on, as Brian preached about. I think he's talking about this sharing the gospel to those who are in darkness. Now, there's a good chance that every person in this room that is a Christian has a person in their life who right now is walking in spiritual darkness. Okay? If not, I want you to pray about God showing you somebody who's already there or 
sending somebody your way or you to somebody to open up a relationship, okay? But more than likely, there is somebody already, a loved one, a family member, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, who right now is living in spiritual darkness, okay? What they don't need is um, a, a, simply to have just a better day. They need, their, they need to be unveiled to the gospel. They need to see the light and come to it, right? What, what Paul is saying is this. It may take a while. They may hear the gospel over and over and over and over again before they see it as it is. Don't lose heart. Don't get frustrated with them. Don't give up on them. Don't talk bad about them. Don't get angry with them. You keep serving them, loving them, being kind to them. And as often as they'll listen, share once again the hope you have in Christ. I don't think he's saying go beat them up with preaching, but as often as you can, you share with them the hope you have in Christ. Now, what we're going to do next, so those who have, you're taking notes, those who have turned to Christ have been given an unrelenting ministry by his mercy. Unrelenting. Can I just share this? I am so thankful that the gospel was shared to me over and over and over again. Like I can remember Aunt Tootsie sharing the gospel with me and, and, and I thought, wow, this is overwhelming. I'd never heard this before. I had heard the word God before, but I'd never heard that God was relational, that he would want to spend time with me, kind of freak me out. Um, that's about all I remember um, and, and that her basement was dark and grungy. It's kind of interesting. The gospel seemed to have always been shared to me in really dark, weird places. But anyway... I remember that, but I remember not responding to it. And then I can remember over and over again hearing it, like I said at the church. Um, I would come down sometimes and take communion thinking, well, if I'll just take communion, then I don't have to make a decision. God will just do it. That didn't work. Um, and, then, and, then, and then God caught me off guard one night. I honestly went to this youth revival because they had a 100-foot-long banana split. There it is. There's the truth. It's a true story. They had rain gutter, 100 foot of rain gutter, and they basically, on sawhorses, and they said, we're 100 foot, come to church tonight, 100 foot long banana split. I didn't realize that it wasn't all for me, because um, to this day I have a passion uh, for, for dessert. But at any rate, God caught me off guard, and that night I was cornered. Um, and I, not only was I cornered, I actually, in the midst of that, was able to see the gospel for what it was and respond. And God lit a fire in me. And I began to see God as not some distant deity, but as a relational father. I didn't have all my doctrine mapped out. I didn't know the difference between John the Baptist and John the Apostle. I didn't know all those things. All I knew is God loves me. He just sent his son to die for me on the cross. He must love me. I mean, that's a big deal, right? But he did it for the forgiveness of my sins. At that age, I knew what sins were. I was pretty good at them. I knew that I had been forgiven, and all of a sudden I had been set free. I'm so thankful that the people in my life didn't give up on sharing the gospel with me. I'm so thankful that God didn't. You have been called to a relentless ministry. And if you ever start to lose heart, just remember how much mercy you've received. I think that's his point here. Those who have turned to Christ have been given an unrelenting ministry by his mercy. Now, verse 2, I want to pull it apart and just uh, look at a few words. Um, 
One of the things that we do in our Discipleship 101 class is we teach people how to study the Bible um, in more detail and in more depth. And one of the tools that we teach is word studies, how to do a word study in original language to get more meaning and more depth and to get a better understanding of what's happening in the text. So we're just going to do that for a minute just to see a few of these beautiful words that Paul writes down to explain some of what's happening in us. So starting in verse 2, he says this, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Some big words there. Um, The word renounced here, it means to give up something that you formerly held on to. You need to think of it that way, okay? It's not like, um, you know, I had this ingrown toenail and I willingly, like, gave it up. It's like something that I had affection for formerly. I held on to it. But but it's to come to a place in life where you see something that's better and you let go of whatever you have to go after it. And we do this in non-spiritual ways all the time with changing jobs, changing positions, changing cars, changing houses, whatever it might be. We see something we think is better and we let go and we go grab something else. Well, what's being expressed here is that in the gospel that we have found something better than what we've had and so we've renounced, we've let go of something. We've renounced disgraceful. Um, The idea here is shame-filled. Things that fill us with shame. This is the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have sin. Now all of a sudden they're filled with shame. What do they do? They They try to hide. They're feeling the shame of what they've done. Shame filled, disgraceful. So it's letting go of shame filled or disgraceful ways. But not only that, underhanded. This is a very vivid word. Um, it literally means to, uh, to take hidden pathways or to operate under the cover of darkness. Um, right now in the Gaza, Israel is, um, is after um, the, the, the Palestinian rebel, uh, um, terrorists. And one of their strategies is to shut down these underground tunnels. And that's what they said. This is, our, this is what we want to come in and do. Now, what's happening is, I don't know, but that's what they're saying. This is what we're doing. Why? Because What's happening is the Palestinians are coming underground in tunnels and slipping up into Israel and creating acts of terror. They just killed like 13 Palestinians the other day. They come, popped up in a tunnel and took their life, right? Um, it's happening across the border, um, right, from Mexico into the U.S., these, these underground tunnels to sneak up and to get into a place that you couldn't have otherwise gotten into. That's the word here, to give up. To let go of things that were shame-filled and underhanded. Those who follow Christ have been, I want you to hear this. Those who follow Christ have been set free to give up the things done under the cover of darkness that cause shame and spiritual blindness. Remember, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Freedom. Freedom from what? Darkness. So... No longer do I have to see Christianity as a list of things to do or not do to make God happy. Because that's oftentimes what gets communicated. You want to make God happy? These things make God happy. Go do them and God is happy with you. You'll know it because you'll get rich and your grass will be beautiful and green and your kids will obey you. Over here are the list of things we don't want you to do. You do these things, God gets mad at you. Okay? God's angry with you. And you'll know it. Because on the way to work, you'll have a flat tire. If you have a flat tire, you just need to conclude, God's punishing me for something. Oh, you know what? It's because I said that word yesterday. Okay? 
In Christ, we have been set free to see the commands of the Lord and his holiness as good things to be pursued. That's it. No longer is this the list of do's and don'ts, but we are able to behold what is true. We see the commandments as an expression of God's character. We go, that's good. That's beautiful. I want holiness. We've been set free from these things that cause shame and that are underhanded and and cause us to want to shrink back in darkness. We've been set free to pursue holiness. That's different from the list of do's and don'ts. Moral deism. Those who are in Christ have been set free to give up the things. Why? Because we found something better. The things that under darkness that cause shame and bitterness or blindness. The rest of verse 2. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Just a few more words. Uh, the word practice here means to walk in. It's an intentional lifestyle. Paul uh, uses a similar wording in Ephesians 2, and he says, um, remember when you were dead in your trespasses and the sins that you once walked? It's the same expression here. Okay, So there's this idea of intentional, walking in, practicing, cunning ways, which literally translates craftiness. It's this intentional deception and manipulation. And, um, and here's the thing. Um, we're all pretty good at it. Some of us, it's more obvious than others, but we are crafty people. We learn this from a very young age, how to manipulate circumstances. Mom against dad. Don't we? Put myself in a better light with the boss to make people think better of me, to have more friends. We're crafty people. We refuse to practice craftiness, or to tamper with God's word. Let's look at the word tamper for a minute. It has a lot of depth and meaning. This word was actually practically used in secular writings to describe the, the uh, mischievous or the uh, deceitful process of the, um, the winemakers and distributors um, when they would dilute their wares of wine with water. They would cut it. So therefore they had more wine to give away. That's where the word comes from. And so not only have we given up the things that fill us with shame, but we also refuse to practice these crafty, deceitful, diluted practices. What is he talking about diluting here? Diluting God's word. Now, um, so here's the thing. It's not a new issue, but it's still an issue. We as people are consistently, generation after generation, prone to giving in to to diluting God's word. Okay? It's happening here. It happens today. I'm going to give you um, just an example. Um, The prosperity gospel is a diluted gospel. And as often as you come back to Solid Rock, we're going to tell you that. Why? Because we want you to be set free from darkness. We want you to have the hope that comes with the true gospel. The prosperity gospel says this to you. It's it's close, but it's not fully true. You deserve to be happy. 
God wants you to be happy. You deserve to be happy. Therefore, God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have lots of friends. He wants you to have the job that you want, the car that you want, the lifestyle that you want. You deserve it all. All you need to have is enough what? Faith. So devastating. What happens to the faithful believer who's been a Christian for a month and is going through and reading and spending time with God? He's transforming them. And then they walk in on Monday and lose their job. What did, they, what did you just teach them? Ah, you need to go look at the do's and don'ts. You messed up again. God's angry with you. Listen, that's not the gospel. It's not. Jesus says, if any man is going to come after me, be ready to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me daily. Any man who seeks to save his own life, to hold on to the things that he wants, guess what? We'll lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find something what? Better. This was the issue with the wealthy young ruler that Jesus encountered. He came to him and said, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, let's talk about the commandments. Let's talk about morality. How you doing there? These I have kept since I was very young. I am a moral person. High five. One thing you lack. Go home and sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the man went away with his head down in much sorrow because he had much wealth. It's a deluded gospel to tell people that if they have enough faith, everything will go well for them. Many, listen to me, many men and women, this day, right now, there are men and women who have more faith, exponentially more faith than any person in this room who are giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Many men and women have died at the sword, by flame, by torture, and they were there because of their great faith, not for lack of it. And there's just one example of how the gospel can be diluted for selfish gain. Look at where Paul goes. So we refuse to practice cunning or tampering with or diluting God's word. Why? Because we can't make it better. Those who follow Christ refuse to intentionally and craftily dilute God's word in order to receive selfish gain. Let's read verse, the rest of verse 2 on down through 5. But, so in contrast to that, so we've given up these shame-filled things. We have refused to jack with God's word. That's my wording. It's close. Because we found something better. Verse 2, here's what we found that's better. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You can test us. We want our, our message to be proclaimed publicly. We want you to hear us in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Christ Jesus as Lord and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Guys, we're not trying to help people have better days. We're not trying to help people feel better about themselves. That's not what it means to be the light. So much more is at stake here. 
God has called us to take the light that has been lit inside of us into a world of darkness to show people where they can really find hope, really find life transformation, where they can really find something that's better. Now, our, okay, here's proof, I would say, that by human nature, we want something better and still haven't found it. Trends. Just the word trend itself. How quickly do trends rise and fall? What drives trends? The desire for something better than what we have. And why do trends fall just as quickly as they rise? Because they never produce what they promise. Whatever it is. Whether it's manipulating uh, your body to be a certain size and shape. I'm not saying don't go work out. But if you think that by making things bigger or smaller, you're somehow going to have more joy. You're, you're buying into a lie. It'll never produce that for you. It won't. Um, by acquiring a certain possession, a certain car, a certain lifestyle. They, it never delivers. It always promises, but it never delivers. That's why we have trends. And now we have, uh, we have Twitter that is built on trends. What I believe Paul is saying is this. To be a light in the world does not mean that we go around watering down the gospel to make people feel better about it, but we need to understand that God has put something in us that unlocks the door to heaven, that unlocks the kingdom, that unveils the eyes so they can see, and it is the gospel. Here's what I believe is true about the church. When we gather here on Sundays... It's temporary, safe harbor from the darkness. I believe that's what it's supposed to be. This is your moment to take a deep breath and rest, to be rejuvenated, to be refreshed. But the majority of your time here on earth is what? To go back out into the darkness and to take the torch that has been lit in your life to the people around you. Should you be kind to people? Yes. Is it good to pay for the person behind you who's in the drive-thru, just a random act of kindness? Sure, go for it. But just don't mistake that as enough because what's at stake is bigger than that. Now, I want to end here by just challenging you to think about um, the people that God has put in your life. And I'm, I'm going to encourage you to, to, to pray and maybe even making a commitment and just to be very intentional with those relationships. But I want to end with this statement before I, before I go there. If you're taking notes, this is the last thing in your notes. Christ's followers are to be the light in the world by proclaiming Christ that the world might see his glory and be drawn to his mercy and set free from the darkness. Christ's followers are to be the light in the world by proclaiming Christ that the world might see his glory and be drawn to his mercy and set free from darkness. That's the good news we have. Here's some questions I want you to think about. First of all, as we've been talking about this today, has God brought anybody to mind in your life that you know um, God has put there on purpose, put you in their life on purpose to share the gospel with them and to, to share with them the hope you have in Christ? A family member, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Okay. Hopefully that person has come to mind. Um, before we even go to any kind of like just commitment or anything, let me just ask this question. 
Um, are you and I, let me just ask it about you. I know about my own sinful ways. Um, are you more prone to default to morality or good deeds, hoping that'll be enough for them instead of sharing the gospel with them? Like you've been being nice to them, you've been hoping that they see that you love them. That's, that tends to be my default mode. I default away from Christ being the treasure to showing them some sense of if you're moral and you want, you want something good in your life to happen, you need to be like me. That's really what I'm teaching them, okay? I just wanna challenge you with that. And here's what I wanna ask. Will you consider making a commitment to say, you know what, I'm, I wanna be used by God in this person's life? Not for my sake, but for theirs. Um, make a commitment to be the light in their world. Which means, as often as it comes up, as often as they will hear you, you share the hope you have in Christ. I'm not talking about badgering them, beating them over the head, but as often as it comes up, conversation, you're always thinking about, how can I start a gospel conversation? By saying, you know, hey, um, hey, would it be okay if I share with you what matters most to me in life? Or when they ask the question, why something, you could say, well, do you mind if I share with you why I feel motivated this way? And as often as you can, share the gospel. That's what it means to be the light. Um, I'm gonna encourage you today, if you've got those people in your mind, just to pray, God, would you give me the opportunity, give me the words to speak, um, look for opportunities, and then when the opportunities present themselves, take them. That's what Paul's talking about. Don't relent. Don't lose heart. Just be faithful. Be faithful. Um, we sang a song earlier, just to kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. We sang a song earlier that says, All the poor and powerless, all the lost and lonely. Do you remember that song we sang? It's the number two song today. All the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy. The next verse says, all the hearts who are content, complacent, and all who feel unworthy, and all who hurt with nothing left will know that you are holy. How is that going to take place if you and I don't commit to share with them the beautiful hope we have in Christ? How is it going to happen? I'm gonna pray for us and just wanna challenge you to think about um, some things. And really, um, this, this message is obviously more challenging for the Christians in the room, right? Who tend to take for granted this beautiful thing we have. And hopefully today, some of that complacency has been stripped away and you realize, you know what, I really have something good here. And, and I need to be more faithful at sharing it with others. But there are other folks in the room today who you're still in that category of I'm still kind of looking at the gospel from a distance. Um, I'm still working my way through the facts. I'm starting to kind of see it kind of come together and I understand it. Um, I want you to know straightforward up front, I'm praying for you today. Um, even if it hasn't happened yet, that before you lead today, God would lift that veil and you would see it for what it is, that you would see the beautiful, radiant glory of Jesus and how much God loves you. I'm praying that for you today, that that'll happen before we leave. Let's pray together. Um, I encourage you to take, uh, take your notes home and work through those and 
um, just to continue to allow God's spirit to speak to you and, and th- in you and through you throughout the week. Um, but let me pray for us as the worship team comes up that we might respond to what we've heard today.